If you have your Bibles, can you please open with me to the book of 1 Samuel? If you don't have a Bible and you need a Bible, just go ahead and stick your hand up and we'll make sure that uh, we get you one so that you can follow along with us. On Sunday mornings, we've been studying through the book of 1 Samuel, and uh, we've been going through it verse by verse and chapter by chapter. We're up to chapter 16 now. You know, this is one of the greatest epic stories in all history, not just in the Bible, but this is one of the greatest epic stories ever told. Uh, this, the, the way the story is presented also here in God's Word, it, it's not meant to be just a history lesson, but it's meant to be a study of the human heart. And that's why the title we've given to this series as we're going through First Samuel, the title we've given it is A Heart for God. And the title of today's message is Already But Not Yet. Already But Not Yet. You know, in our study last week, what we saw was how King Saul, the first king of Israel, he had started out with a heart for God, but over time, that changed. And Saul began to rebel against God in his heart and in his actions. He began to resist the will of God for the nation and for his life. And it got to the point where God told Saul, I am going to take the kingdom away from you. You cannot be king any longer. Basically, Saul, you're fired. And I'm going to find somebody else, a better man than you, to replace you as king over my people Israel. In our study last week, uh, we looked at the first part of 1 Samuel chapter 16. This week we're going to look at the second half. But in our study last week, what we saw was how God, in a very unexpected way, chose a very unlikely person to succeed Saul as king over Israel. God chose a shepherd boy, uh, a boy named David, who was completely unknown and who was not even regarded highly by his own family members. And David, this boy, he was probably 12 to 15 years old. Kind of, uh, I believe, the is tween, right? He was a tween. And so God says, this, this is the one who's going to be the next king over Israel. And, and this is why, this is the logic behind it. God says, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You know, outwardly, David wasn't much to look at. He didn't have a lot going for him. But David had a very special heart for God. And God saw that and said, that's what I'm looking for in the leader. So Samuel the prophet, we saw last week, he comes and he anoints uh, David. And by doing so, he declares him to be king of Israel. But the thing is here, right? So now we've got David, who was just anointed king of Israel. But there's another guy who's also still king of Israel, right? Like, that's kind of a precarious situation. You've got two guys who are supposedly king over Israel. You see, here's the situation with David. David is king already, but not yet. Right? He's king already, but not yet. And this phrase, already but not yet, is a reoccurring theme throughout the Bible. Do you know that? And it's a very key concept to what it means to live the Christian life, to understand the Christian life that we live. Already, but not yet. And today is Palm Sunday, right? Uh, the, the idea of already, but not yet, is what Palm Sunday is all about. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that as we get into the text here in 1 Samuel chapter 16. So let's uh, pick it up in verse 13. It says, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to God. The next verse, verse 14, it says, But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, 
and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. Samuel the prophet here, he anoints David with oil. Now this was done to signify something. This is to signify that he is making David king of Israel. And, and as that happens, we read that the spirit of the Lord comes upon David to empower him spiritually through this calling that God's called him to do. Now there were three groups of people in the Old Testament who were anointed with oil in this way. You've got prophets, priests, and kings. You know, everybody knew this. So when Samuel shows up and anoints David, it's really no question about what's going on. Everybody's really clear on this. There's only three kinds of people who are anointed, prophets, priests, and kings. So they pour this oil, or Samuel pours this oil on David's head to symbolize the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And as they do this symbolic act, in truth, the Spirit of God did indeed descend upon David. Now, the question of the role and the work of the Holy Spirit is something that I get asked a lot about as a pastor. Uh, you know, people want to know, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? What does it mean to be anointed? You know, maybe you've heard that, you know, that person has an anointing. What does that even mean, right? What does it mean, or somebody might ask, how do I know if I'm filled with the Spirit, right? What, what does all these words mean? They can be a little bit confusing, but I want you to know, it doesn't have to be confusing. I want to make it real clear and understandable. Today. So, uh, for you note takers, you can take some notes on this if you're interested. In the Bible, there are three distinct kinds of relationships which are described that the Holy Spirit has with people. Right? The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, this is God's Spirit. And there are three distinct relationships that the Spirit has with people. And these three relationships correspond to three uh, different Greek words, right? We've got the words para, Para, in, and epi, right? Para means with, and means in, and epi means upon, right? It's, it's not too difficult. For you know, take a sheet, you want to hear some homework. Uh, go home, read John, Gospel of John, chapters 14 to 16. This is the part where Jesus talks to his disciples, and he discusses with them, he tells them about the person and work of the Holy Spirit in the world and in the life of the believer. So that's some homework for those of you who are interested. But here's how it basically works. Again, three relationships, with, in, and upon, right? The Holy Spirit is with all people. He's with everybody in this sense, right? The Holy Spirit is with all people, speaking to their hearts and convicting them of their need for God, their need for the gospel, because he's convicting them of sin and righteousness and judgment, that they need to come to God, they need to repent, they need to turn to him, they need to give their lives to him and be saved, right? The Holy Spirit is with all people, convicting them those things. That means he's with your neighbors who, who don't love Jesus and don't walk with God. He's with your family members who you've been trying to talk to for a long time. He's with people who are, are in other places and don't even never, never even heard the name of Jesus. He's with them, convicting them of their need of God. Now the Holy Spirit is also in some people, right? He's in who? He's in those people who have been born again through faith in Jesus Christ. Born again to faith in Jesus Christ. And those people, the Holy Spirit dwells within them, right? This is something which, which is unique to the new covenant which came about through Jesus. What that means is that wasn't something that existed in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then God has put His Spirit inside of you to lead you by His Spirit, to sanctify you by His Spirit, basically to change you and transform you from the inside out. In the book of Romans chapter 8, it says this, that if anyone does 
not have the Spirit of God inside of them, then they do not belong to God. So if you ever wonder, I'm a Christian, but I'm not sure if I have the Holy Spirit inside of me, the answer is this. It's real simple. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, believe the gospel, then you do have the Holy Spirit inside of you. But then there's also this third relationship with the Holy Spirit. And this is the one which you read right that the Holy Spirit came upon David, right? This is that epi, the word in Greek, epi, which means to come upon, right? This is separate from salvation. That's important to know. And this is when the Spirit of God will come upon somebody for the purpose of empowering them to carry out a particular task which he has called them to do. And we read this phrase, for example, throughout the book of Judges, over and over, right? Uh, there was a crisis in the nation, and God would raise up a deliverer or a judge, and uh, it says there that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel. Why? To empower them in a very special way to carry out a particular task, right? So in the, in the New Testament, in which is the disciples, we see the whole spectrum going on with these guys, right? Jesus tells them in, in John chapter 14, before he's crucified, right, this is like Last Supper discussion, he, said, he has this long talk with them about the Holy Spirit, and, and he says this, he says, the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, he is with you now, but he will be soon in you also. And then after Jesus dies and resurrects in John chapter 20, as Jesus is talking to his disciples, it says that he breathed on them, said, peace be with you, he breathed on them, and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Probably you're going to receive the Holy Spirit, right? But yet, separate to that, on a separate occasion, Jesus says to the disciples again in Acts chapter 1, he says, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Father, power from on high. Right? So, you see, in John chapter 20, Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. At that point, Jesus has died, he's resurrected. This is the point, I believe, that they are born again. The Spirit of God dwells within them. But on a separate occasion after that, Jesus shows up and says, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. He says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit what? comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. What was that power for? It was for a purpose. It was power to accomplish a particular task. It was power to carry out the mission that God had given them to bear witness to the world of who Jesus was and what he did. And that's the same thing you see in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit was with people, convicting them of their need for God, the, the, the will of God for their lives. And then also the Holy Spirit would come upon people at certain times to empower them to do what God had called them to do. Now I'll tell you what, that's very encouraging. That should be very encouraging for you and for me. Because here's what it means. That it means that if God calls you to do something, that he will also give you the strength and the ability you need to carry that out and do it well. I think that's great, right? Because Maybe God has called you to do something, and you feel like that's over your head. You feel like, man, I don't know if I have what it takes to do that. I don't know if I can do that. That's a, you know, a, a high calling. That's a tough, you know, thing to swallow. Think about David here. He's called to be king of Israel, but he's like 13 years old, right? It's a tall order. 
how to do it. He's a shepherd. What does he know about being a king? Probably he could easily feel like God's called me to do this thing, but I mean, way over my head. This is more than I know how to do. How could he call me to do something that I'm totally incapable of doing? But the good news for David, and the good news for any of you who would step out and do something that God has called you to do, is that here's the good news that God will empower you by his spirit to do that which he has called you to do. That's what the anointing of the Holy Spirit is all about. So here in, in 1 Samuel 16, you read that as the Spirit of the Lord comes upon David, we also read that the Spirit of the Lord departs from Saul. Now that isn't because there's some kind of shortage of the Spirit of the Lord. You know, some kind of, so much to go around, I take a little from here, put a little there, you know what I mean? No, not at all. But what this is here is that God is doing something strategic, as we'll see by the end of the chapter, but he's also doing something very profound. Now what's profound here is this. God is essentially giving Saul what Saul wants. Let me explain. Can you imagine Saul's heart over the last several years? I mean, it's just a few chapters for us, but this is years for Saul, right? Saul's heart over the past several years. We've been reading about it. When Saul first became king, Saul's heart was tender and soft towards God. But as the years went on, Saul grew in his royal capacity as a king and as a general and as a leader and ruler, and he became more and more proud. And as that happened, his heart became harder and harder and more resistant to God. And, and the Holy Spirit was with Saul, right? The Holy Spirit, as we talked about these three relationships, the Holy Spirit is with Saul, doing what? Convicting him. Saying, Saul, what are you doing, man? What you're doing is not good. You're going in a wrong path, bad direction, Saul. You need to repent, Saul. You need to turn back. You need to come to the Lord. You need to soften your heart. Saul would say, no, leave me alone. He'd stick his fingers in his ear and say, la, 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 I don't want to hear it. And he'd say, the Holy Spirit keeps speaking. But Saul would harden his heart and say, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it anymore. No, leave me alone. Until it reached the point where God said, fine. He says, I'll remove my spirit from you. Ultimately, he gave Saul what he wanted. You see? That's a heavy thought, isn't it? That, that you can say no to God so repeatedly, so often, that finally God will remove His Spirit from you. Now some of you might worry when you hear that and say, what if God takes His Holy Spirit away from me? I'm kind of afraid that He might do that to me, just like He did to Saul. That would be bad, right? Again, this is why it's so important to understand these three distinct relationships that the Holy Spirit has with you. Very important, because then when you understand that, it all becomes clear. Uh, what, what we're seeing here is that where God takes the Spirit away from Saul, what we're talking about is that first relationship, that with relationship, in which the Holy Spirit is speaking to Saul's heart and convicting him and calling him to give his heart and his life over to God. If you are a Christian, like, like a real Christian, right, and you believe in the gospel and you follow Jesus, then you have a relationship with the Holy Spirit that Saul never had. Okay? If you put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, you're actively following Jesus, and God has put his Holy Spirit within you, and he will not remove it, right? In that case, the Ephesians, Paul says the Ephesians, you have been sealed. You're sealed, man. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. You're his. He has redeemed your soul by giving his life for yours. 
He's given you the Holy Spirit as a guarantee that He has redeemed you and that you are His. And, and He's not going to let you go. He's not going to decide one day to unredeem you, right? He's not going to decide today to, to take you back. If you've been redeemed, He's not going to unredeem you. See, we have a different relationship in the new covenant with the Holy Spirit than what Saul had. But on the other hand, maybe there are some of you here today who have never really put your trust and your faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are plenty of people like that. Maybe some of you here are like that today. Uh, and God's spirit in that case is not yet in you, but he is with you. You know what he's doing? He's bugging you. I know that's what it was for me. There was a time when, man, I knew the Holy Spirit was just tugging on my heart and I was resisting. Right? So he's with you. And he's bugging you and speaking to your heart and saying, Come on now. I want to forgive your sins. I want to give you a new life. Stop resisting me. That was the situation that Saul was in. And it's in this sense that God removes his spirit from Saul. In Saul's mind, it, it probably, you know, he wasn't thinking, I hope God removes his Holy Spirit and gives me a distressing spirit. Probably he's just thinking, I wish God would just leave me alone. I don't like feeling convicted all the time whenever I do whatever I want to do. But, but Saul, look here. Saul, if you don't like being bugged by the Holy Spirit, just wait until you're bugged by a distressing spirit. It's, it's worse. Not, not only did the Spirit of God depart from Saul, but also did the distressing spirit trouble Saul. Now what this means is that God allowed or even possibly sent upon Saul some serious spiritual attack. And as we go on in 1 Samuel, this will, we'll see that this is a condition that Saul is going to suffer with for the rest of his life. Uh, and what it looks like is that Saul, you know, from time to time has these reoccurring bouts where he's just terribly troubled, he's distressed. Uh, during one of them, he starts throwing spears at people inside his own house. You know? you know, a lot of people have suggested that what Saul was struggling with here was depression some sort of mental illness. Now that very well may be the case, but the text here seems to be telling us that there was also a spiritual aspect to it. Now, I, I want to say this real clearly, so I'm not misunderstood. So, uh, I want to say this. Not every case of mental illness or mental distress is spiritual in nature. Not every time, right? There are things like chemical imbalances and physiological problems with brain chemistry, and, and those are real problems here in our fallen world that need to be treated medically, and they aren't necessarily spiritual in nature. But, but then sometimes there are situations like that that, are, that do have a spiritual dimension to them. And I wonder how many times in our modern uh, system we just treat people for mental health issues but don't deal with the spiritual aspect. And some of these people could find freedom and hope and liberation by turning to the Lord, but our, our modern mental health system doesn't have the capacity for that. So let's carry on in verse 15 and see what happens. Saul's servant said to him, surely like the distressing spirit from God is troubling. Notice that the people around Saul were, were very apt to what was going on with Saul. And that's the case sometimes. Sometimes our spiritual condition is more apparent to the people around us than it is even to ourselves. That's one of the reasons why being in community with other believers and godly people is so important. Verse 16. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the harp, and it shall be that he will play it with his hand, and the distressing spirit from God is upon you, and you shall be well. So Saul's servants recognize 
Saul's under the spiritual attack, and they say, Saul, we, we have a solution for you. You know what you need? You need a worship leader. You need someone to minister to you uh, with music when you're having these doubts that you have from time to time. You know, what's interesting about the people of Israel, that the, even to this day, the nation of Israel, when you look at all their uh, cultural traditions and their music and, and you know, even their festivals and things like that, everything was all centered around God, right? All their music was about God. They wrote a song. What's that song going to be about? Well, they're all about God, so it's not, not a surprise, right? So this wouldn't have been just instrumental music. This would have been praise music. This would have been songs about God, songs about God's glory, and goodness, and faithfulness. These are like worship songs, right? Praising God for who He is and what He's done. And they say, hey, you know what? We need a guy who can play the harp, right? Well, uh, the harp that was common in Bible times, or the ancient harp, this was, was not generally what we think of as a harp, like, you know, some big thing made of, like, stone that has, like, hundred strings sits on the ground. This should be more like a smaller instrument, has eight to ten strings. Really, honestly, the, the thing that it would be most comparable to in our modern day would be a guitar. So they, get, they want to get a guy in there who can minister in music and play basically the guitar and sing some songs of praise and worship to God. That's what we call a worship leader. You know what I'm saying? We're just keeping it biblical. So verse 17. So Saul says to his servants, provide me now a man who can play what? And bring it to me. So it says, all right, you can bring me a worship leader, but he better be good. I don't want any of these not so good worship leaders coming out. Verse 18, then one of the servants answered and said, look, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful playing like playing. He's a mighty man of valor. He's a man of war. He's prudent in speech, and he's a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. Apparently, people knew about David by this point. He must have been playing some open mic nights, you know, making a name for himself. And we see here, uh, basically what we got here is some rough guidelines for what makes a good worship leader, right? First of all, it says that he should be really good at the harp, right? Say, David, you like him, he's really good. Basically, he kills it on the harp. Playing skillfully, let me tell you, this is important, right? It's important to play skillfully if you're going to lead worship. It's not the most important thing. But it's important, right? If you've heard different people leading worship, you've experienced what it's like when it's quality and it's conducive to worship and the, the band is just invisible and it just leads you into, it's conducive to worshiping God, right? But sometimes you get, you know, you've maybe experienced it where you get someone who's not as great and then it's almost distracting. In fact, it's absolutely distracting and when someone doesn't play well. Now, let me say this. I used to lead worship at uh, the church that I started under, and, uh, and I enjoyed doing it. But I always used to say, when I came to worship, I used to say that what I lacked in skill, I made up for enthusiasm. Right? <laughs> and uh, I've, seen, I've seen some worship leaders on one hand, right, who are very skillful, but they lack any kind of enthusiasm or passion. Right? They're, they're doing their thing, and they're good, but they lack enthusiasm. On the other hand, enthusiasm only goes so far. And I know that, and uh, that's why I always look for other people who are more skilled than myself to lead worship even though I can do it. But, so being skilled musically, again, it's not the only thing that matters. You also have to have godly character. That's what they say about David. They say, hey, David, not only does he play well, but he is a mighty man of valor, right? He's not just good on the guitar. He has strong godly character. 
You, you might be the best musician in the world, but if you don't have godly character, then you have no business in worship. Next, it says that he's prudent in speech. What an important quality for a leader. And, and it says that he's good looking, you know, and that reverts. And, and then next, it says that God is with him. Most important, right? Verse 19. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. Notice where David is. David is with the sheep. David just got anointed like yesterday, right? As king of Israel, right? This big ceremony by the prophet of God. He just got anointed as king. And you can imagine at that point David would probably been trying to say, you know, Dad, brothers, uh, uh, clearly, I'm kind of a big deal, and uh, I have a special call in my life, so uh, I guess you guys can find somebody else to watch the sheep from now on, right? And I've, I've got a, a major calling in my life, so I'll be doing that around right here. And, you know, maybe uh, that's not what David did, or maybe it is what he did, and his brothers and dad were like, whatever, man, I don't care if you came, you're still the youngest in the family to watch the sheep, right? We don't know. But either way, David is out there watching the sheep after he's already been anointed as king. What a picture this is. Now think about this. Think about this dichotomy between these two men. The, the, the picture we're seeing here, right? The Spirit of God has come upon David, anointing him to be king. At the same time, the Spirit of God has departed from Saul. And here's David, a, a man, a young man with a heart for God. <coughs> And this special anointing, this great calling, and he's out tending to the sheep. The most humble peasant job that existed. But God is with him. On the other hand, you have Saul. Where's Saul? He's in this palace with all these robes and this pomp and the throne and everything. You know what? He's a mess. He's just a complete mess. God is not with him. He's tormented. He's depressed. Saul has the image of splendor, but none of the substance. David, on the other hand, he has none of the none of the image of splendor, but he has all of the substance. David's circumstances are humble, but David is incredibly rich to the point where the richest man in the whole kingdom is seeking out. David and saying, I need what you have. Isn't that interesting? You see the picture that's painted here? There's this dichotomy between these two men. The man after God's own heart and the man after his own heart. And the question it poses for us is, who do you want to be? Who do you want to be? Do you want to be Saul or do you want to be David? You know what? I'm guessing that most people, right, many people would look at Saul and be like, I want to be in Saul's position. You know what? Opulence, money, power, people serving on you, hand and foot, those are all things that people want, right? Well, guess who was in Saul's position? Saul! And he was miserable! He hated it, right? And at the same time, what do we got? We got this guy, David. Now, who wants to be in David's position, right? Very few people. Let's see. What's David got going for him? Well, he's in a dead-end, low-paying job, and he is lowly regarded by everybody including people in his own family, right? Nobody wants to be in David's position, but guess what? David's poor, he's in a dead-end job, he's got no respect, but he has everything. To the point where the richest man in the kingdom says, 
I need you to come minister to me because I need what you have. Saul's tormented and spirit is terribly depressed. David's full of joy. Saul has pushed God out of his life. God is with David, the richest, most powerful man in the world, who has everything in the eyes of the world, is calling on a shepherd boy who basically is a nobody with nothing and saying, I need what you have. How profound is that? You know what that tells us? It's a reminder to us of this, that the inner life, the inner life, is ultimately more weighty than the outer life. The inner life is ultimately more weighty than the outer life. That's a major theme of the Bible, you know that? Paul talks about this in many places. My personal favorite is in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says that we who have come to know God, God has given us this incredible treasure of himself, right? He's given us this incredible treasure. And we have that incredible treasure. We carry it around in jars of clay. That's our bodies. That's our human life. Jars of clay. Breakable, kind of dirty, kind of dusty, earthy. And he describes the Christian life in this way. I love this. He says, we are unknown, but we are well known. Right? We're unknown to the world, but we are well known to God. We are dying, but behold, live. Amen? We are poor, yet we are making many rich. We have nothing, yet we possess everything. Paul is describing the inward life versus the outward life. Who he is in the eyes of the world versus who he is before God. All of these things could have equally been said about David. Unknown, yet well known. Dying, but behold, we live. We're poor, yet we're making many rich. We possess nothing, but we have everything. Check out what goes on in verse 20. It says, Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul, packed him on the shelves. So David comes to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly. And Saul loved David greatly. David became Saul's armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. So it was when the Spirit of God was upon Saul that David would take a heart and play it with his hand, and Saul would become refreshed and well and distressed to the There's power in praise, right? There's power in praising God, declaring who he is, and worshiping him. That's why we give praise and worship a very central role here at Whitefields in our church services. We believe it's important. It's not just a musical prelude to the sermon. It is us collectively declaring and praising and worshiping God for who he is and what he's done. Now, now maybe you remember what I said earlier. I said that this is actually a perfect text for Palm Sunday. And you might be wondering, what in the world does this have to do with Palm Sunday? Let me tell you. Get around to what I told you this story. Okay? Now think about this. Here's David. Young shepherd boy from a poor family in a dumpy rural town in the Middle East. And the prophet of God shows up one day and says, God has chosen you to be king. He's like, who, me? Yeah, you. God's chosen you to be king. He says, I'm actually going to make you king right now. Right? And so he anoints him with oil by the prophet. And then, hey, that's awesome, right? But then what happens? And then the prophet goes away. And David's like, this is great, I'm the king. So now what? It's like, 
I just got onto this team, so so what I do next, right? And then what happens? Nothing. Nothing happens. And after a while, his dad and his brothers say, hey, uh, somebody's got to take care of the sheep, so please get back up right? And the question is, okay, so if this guy was just made king, they have a ceremony, there's an anointing, there's a declaration, but there's also another guy who's sitting on the throne, and he's also the king, and this guy, David, is just tending Sheep. It's kind of weird, right? And so how is this unknown shepherd boy who has a very special heart for God, how is he ever going to get into the palace and sit on the throne as king? Well, well one day he's out watching the sheep and you know he's probably quite confused about what's going on and how he's supposedly king, but yet nobody knows about it except for his family members. His family members don't even seem to care, right? So he's supposed to be the king, but there's also another guy who's king. What's he going to do? He's probably like, well, what do I do? Do I just show up at the palace and say, uh, hey, king, um, so the prophet told me to come, and now it's my turn to be king, so if you just move over, I'll take my turn now, right? Uh, well, that probably wouldn't work. So one day he's just out in the field, and, and his dad shows up, and this letter arrived from the king. Crazy, right? Like, how often does that happen, right? And, and he gets a letter from the king asking for David's assistance to minister to him with songs of praise and worship. Okay, so think about this. By means, remember I said that that distressing spirit was in a way very strategic. Well, here's how. This distressing spirit, by means of this distressing spirit, God has made a way for David to live in the palace of the king. Think about how much David is going to learn about being king by living in the palace of the king. By being the armor bearer of the king, this armor bearer is basically the king's right hand man. All in all, from the time that David is anointed as king to the time when David actually sits on the throne of Israel as king, will be a period of about 15 to 20 years. 15 to 20 years, that's a long time. David is king already, but not yet. And this in-between time, right? This in-between time, this will be a very important time in David's life. This will be a time of training, a time of preparation. And it will not be easy. For, from, for much of this time, David will not be living in the palace. For much of this time, David will be on the run, right? He will be hiding out in caves. He will be living as a refugee in other countries because when Saul finds out that God has anointed David to be king, Saul's going to do everything he can to kill him so that Saul can hold on to his power, even if it's illegitimate. 15 to 20 years. David is king already, but not yet. Does that sound familiar? Because really, this is a reoccurring theme throughout the Bible. God speaks to Abram, right? An old man with a barren wife, and he says, I am going to make you into a great nation. So from this day forward, I'm changing your name. No longer shall you be called Abram, which means father, but you're going to be called Abraham, which means father of many. Well, that probably created some awkward situations when introducing himself, you know, like, hey, uh, my name is father of many. Awesome. So you got lots of kids? No, I don't actually, but I'm gonna. Oh, yeah, well, cool. Well, you must have a pretty young wife because you're pretty old. Well, she's a little bit younger than me. And I go, oh, yeah, she's right over there. Oh, well, behind the brown? No, 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 it is the brown. That's right. <laughs> And, uh, he's got this promise, he's got this name, it's a declaration. You are the father of many. 
there's this in-between time. Between the declaration and the realization, there are 20 years. Paul the Apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes to the Ephesians and to the Romans, and he says, you've been justified before God. You have been already justified before God. God has made you holy. God has glorified you. God has raised you up and seated you with Christ in heaven. Okay, people probably read this for the first time. Right, like looking at each other like, what is this guy talking about, right? Is this guy even see, lost touch with reality? What in the world is this guy talking about? And here's what the deal is, right? They were justified and holy and glorified. We are all those things in Christ already, but not yet, right? Okay? But we know those things are true. Yet we don't experience them in tangible reality yet. We are set free from bondage. We have conquered death already, but not yet. Jesus rode a donkey into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago. By doing so, Jesus was declaring himself to be the Messiah. There's a prophecy in the Old Testament that said when the Messiah comes, he's going to ride into Jerusalem, not on a horse and a conqueror, but as a donkey, or well, on a donkey, as the prince of peace, right? That's what a donkey symbolizes. So Jesus, he rides in, fulfilling the prophecy on Palm Sunday, in the city of Jerusalem, declaring himself to be the king of the Jews, the king of kings, the Messiah, the Lord of lords, who, who is coming, right, why? To establish a kingdom, to establish the kingdom of God. The reign of God forever, a kingdom of truth and justice, of love and peace. He fulfills the prophecy and the people, they see Jesus coming in and they welcome him into Jerusalem as king. They lay palm branches on the ground as a red carpet to usher him into the city. And, you know, he's come to drive out the oppressors, to establish the everlasting kingdom. And five days later, this man is nailed to two pieces of wood. Uh, on which he will hang until he can no longer hold himself up any longer to take a breath. He will die. This kind of death is how they dealt with the criminals in that society. And above his head would hang a sign, and you know what it would say, mockingly? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. On Palm Sunday, Jesus declared himself to be the Savior of the world, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Five days later, he would willingly go to his death. You see, on Palm Sunday, he had everybody behind him. He, he could have started a popular revolt at that time. He could have overthrown the Romans. He could have, the people wanted to enthrone him. He could have left them. But instead, this king chose a cross over a throne. He chose shame over glory. And then we look to him and say, indeed, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Indeed, he rules over an eternal kingdom of peace and love and justice and equity already, but not yet. See, through his death and resurrection, Jesus defeated, for once and for all, sin, death, and the devil. He broke the curse of sin and death over us. We're free. We're set free already, but not yet. And the point of our story here for Samuel, David is king of Israel already, but not yet. And for all of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that, that phrase, Already, but not yet, it sums it all up. We, are, we live in this tension between already and 
not dead. Right? We are saved. We are set free. We're brought into the kingdom of God already, but not yet. We're justified and sanctified and glorified already, but not yet. Our king has come already, but not yet. So the question is, how do you live in that place of already, but not yet? Do what David did. See what David did? He, he lived in that situation. And you know how he lived already, but not yet? With patient hope and fervent expectation. Patient hope and fervent expectation for the day that was surely coming, but which had not come yet, when the promises would be full, tangible reality. And you know what? That day did come for you. And it will indeed come for us. You know what David did until that day came? Whatever God put in front of him, he did it faithfully. He did it faithfully. Uh, and, and whether that meant watching over the sheep, whether it meant leading worship, whether it meant being armor bearer. Whatever God put in front of him to do, he did it faithfully, and he did it how? As a king. You know that? He did it as a king. Until the day came when God did call him to sit on the throne because that's who he was. He was the king already, just like that. Friends, let me ask you here, how, how do you live in this time, in between time that you are in? Until your faith becomes sight, until the promises are tangibly realized, you live like David did, with the knowledge of who you are already in him, until that day finally comes because of the book of Amen. Let's stand. Lord, thank you for who you are, and thank you for, for who you have made us in Christ already. And Lord, we pray that as we would be like David, that we would live in that tension between already and not yet, with, with patient hope and fervent expectation, that we would live in the reality of who we are in you already. And Lord, that we would wait patiently for that day when it all becomes reality, that we would live in the knowledge that that day is coming. But I pray for anybody here who has that relationship with the Holy Spirit like Saul had, where the Holy Spirit is saying, Come, come now. I, I want to forgive your sins. I want to make you mine. I want to give you a new life. I want to give you, I want to welcome you in to knowing God and walking with God. And I pray if there's anybody here today who has not yet put their faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, Lord, would you move on their heart right now to make that choice? Even as we sing this next song. For the next uh, song, we're going to have our church come forward. We're going to pass out the elements.